Such a privilege to speak here this evening. I wonder if someone said to you, what is your deepest, darkest fear? What would be your response? We're all scared of some things. The, the Brain Research Institute recently did some brain research, which they are institutionalized to do so, and found that 88% of people fear things in relation to their health that will never actually happen. 90% of the things that people fear are deemed to be insignificant issues. The top three fears, fear of public speaking, glossophobia, the fear of death, necrophobia, or the fear of spiders, arachnophobia. However, some of you today may have the very real fear of nomophobia, the fear of not having a mobile phone or network coverage. <laughs> some of you may also have the real and honest fear of arachnophobia, which is a fear of having peanut butter stuck to the roof of your mouth. And some of you might struggle from hippopotamonstrosis, quidopeliophobia, or the fear of long words. We all have fears. Fears of not succeeding. Fears of not getting that promotion. Fears of not finding the one. Fears of those relationship issues not being resolved. Very real fears on a day-to-day basis. Will I make ends meet this month? Growing up, I had the very real fear that if people got to know the real me... They wouldn't like what they saw underneath the surface. My parents, like many, divorced when I was two, and my dad got custody of me and my older brother and sister. And for years and years, my dad was, as Toby said, a butcher, um, but he also had two other jobs to make ends meet, and one was on a meatpacking plant, and the other was deliveries of food products, not very exotic. We lived on a council estate, and I shared my bedroom, and then when my dad remarried when I was 10, I shared my bedroom even more, and in the end there were four of us in one bedroom. Not exactly the perfect teenage hangout spot, but there we go. Things weren't always straightforward at home. There was a lot of chaos, a lot of anxiety, to the point where my older brother and sister moved up to live with my mum, which left me alone. And whilst I had some stepbrothers and sisters that were a bit younger, as a teenager I just felt so alone. School was a bit interesting. And what, also what was going on in private and to, uh, unknown to everyone was that a close family friend was abusing me for four years regularly on a weekly basis. And so as a teenager, I was filled with all this anxiety. If people really knew what was going on beneath the surface, they would not like, like what they saw. And it got so bad that in the end, all I could do was run away. And so I hopped on a train. I stuck myself in the, in the toilet all the way from one end to the other and ended up in London to go and find my mum. I live with my mum, and my mum worked nights, which meant that if you're a teenager and your parent is away at night time, you can do whatever you want. And so I did. And school was chaotic. We had a police station in the school. It was interesting. London life, innit? But I really struggled to let people in. I really struggled to let friends actually get to know me. Didn't have any friends come home because I didn't want them to see what they saw. Didn't want people to know the real me. I didn't want all that stuff. I had a real fear if people knew who I really was. The thing is, we all face storms in life. Of all varying varieties, of all different, unique things. But here, the disciples in our reading are encountering a very real storm. The thing is, they're used to having Jesus with them. A few chapters before, we have that famous encounter of Jesus calming the storm. And now, as the waves start to rise against their boat, as that stuff starts to happen, their buddy Jesus, who calmed the storm before, isn't around. He's praying. And as we continue, 
Before we do that, we need to realize there's two very important characters in this story. One is the boat. If you're a Middle Eastern fisherman, your boat is everything. Your life, your livelihood, sometimes your family inheritance, sometimes where you sleep at night because fishing was done in hot countries at nighttime. It represented everything that you had on that boat. It's where relationships were forged between friends as they fished together. All that stuff, everything. And the other character in this story is the sea. For a Middle Eastern Jewish believer, the sea represented chaos and evil and the unknown and the very depths of pain and despair. And also, if you're a fisherman and you enter into the sea, it probably means you're doing your job badly. You're meant to stay in the boat to fish. And so the, so the sea was all, represented all that was evil, all that was chaotic. Have that in your mind. As Jesus walks on water, he's not simply doing a David Blaine trick. He's not a Paul Daniels of his generation. But he is conquering fear, step by step, standing above and overcoming evil, step by step. And as he comes to meet people in the storm of their life, he's not just saying, I'm here, I've solved it, but he's meeting them right in the middle of their mess. The thing is, Jesus walks out on the water and the disciples' first response is, it must be a ghost. Because, because the depths of the ocean, that's where all the hell and evil was. It must be a ghost. However, what Jesus says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. One of the most renowned verses all throughout scripture that's repeated so often, take courage, don't be afraid. Take courage, don't be afraid. Because so many times are we stuck in mess. So many things confront us and give us all kinds of fears, anxieties. Take courage. Don't be afraid. The thing is, sometimes what this verse tells us is sometimes Jesus does not calm the storm instantly. But the promise is this. Whatever the storm, he will meet you in it. Whatever the storm is, he will walk step by step and meet you in it. Before I went to church... I thought that the church was full of lovely people doing lovely things and spending their Sundays very nice on doing nice things. I'd watch Sister Act, and so I thought that's what Christians did. Sung gospel and painted cars. That's all that goes on in those films. That's what I thought they did. But inside, I was broken. I was confused. I was lost. I was hurting. I was holding on to this secret past that I'd been holding on and hadn't told a single soul. Until one day I was doing what all 15-year-olds are doing, and I was in a pub having a pint, when in came this guy selling a pirate DVD, which was before the download button, and he had a sack load of them, you could choose all kinds of things, so I went through and had a little look, and I went home, threw it in, and I was the proud new owner of The Passion of the Christ. The irony is not lost on it being pirate copy. And as I watched through that, that guy walk past holding his popcorn, and the the shaky camera, and squinting to see the subtitles, I suddenly was confronted with a Jesus I hadn't heard of before. Where Jesus was just a lovely lyric and some Christmas carols before, maybe. Where actually sometimes it's just a good example to do good things. Here I saw a Jesus that hung out with some very unlikely characters. Judas hung around with him for three years. Had a place at the table for three years. Simon Peter, who was sometimes so boisterous and, and headstrong, but also sometimes lacked faith was still around, hanging around with Jesus. Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, the people who were on the outskirts of society, they were all hanging around with Jesus. And a penny dropped at that moment that maybe, just maybe, 
I might have a place. Maybe. And that week, coincidentally, someone said, do you want to come to church? And so in all of my teenage enthusiasm, I was like, yeah, I'm. And I went. And the thing is, is that still as I walked, I met a load of smiley people. You might have encountered some as you came in. And yet I still had this dark shadow, this fear, this stuff that was going on inside, this stuff that if people knew the real me, they wouldn't like what they saw. I felt I had nothing to contribute, that actually all that stuff was like a prison holding me. The word courage means to move forward by leaving fear behind. Take courage. Move forward, leave fear behind. As I decided to try and follow Jesus' example when I was about 16 and step out of that current boat, that boat that kept me safe, the the stuff that I knew was, was true about myself, that I thought was true about myself, that actually I'm of no worth. As I decided to step out of that boat, as Jesus said, come, meet me on the water. Things didn't get calm at all. But I knew that Jesus was prepared to meet me on the waves. Prepared to meet me in the mess. Prepared to meet me right in that messy place. But it's not always easy. The thing is, in this story, is Simon Peter gets out of the boat, walks on water. I wonder what his first couple of walks are like. I don't want to do like a tap dance or something. But as he, he walks out on the water towards Jesus. And there's this amazing moment where he sees the wind And he's afraid that he's going to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. The thing is, I've seen this verse so many times. So many times. And I thought, what is he afraid of? It must be the waves. must be the water. must be something that he's scared of. But no. The Bible says it is the wind. How can you see the wind? You can't. But isn't it true that sometimes the things that affect us, the things that we're frightened of, the things that we cause as anxiety, are the very things we can't even see. Yet they feel so much more real than the person in front of us. Jesus saying, come, meet me on the waves. Meet me here. I bet they hate me. I bet God doesn't think I'm good enough. I bet that I won't get that promotion. I bet you that I won't. I bet you that stuff is true about me. All the stuff that we can't see sometimes sounds so much louder. All those things. And yet Jesus says, come. Yet as Peter walks on the water, his gaze shifts. Where he focused on Jesus... Where he focused on Jesus to be, the, to be the determinant, to be the person who would call him into something new. His gaze just shifts, turns, and he suddenly realizes. He suddenly, suddenly remembers all those things that people said about him before. You can't be walking on water. You can't be that guy. You can't be that guy. Where is our gaze? Where is our gaze? Do we see Jesus in the mess? Can we hear him say that word? Come. If we take Simon Peter's example to heart, even as he starts to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. So often it's when we're drowning, when we're fully submerged, that's when we cry out. But sometimes we need to realize that Jesus is there waiting, waiting with his hand outstretched for us, that if only we would take it, if only we would take it, then we can be walking through this stuff with Jesus. It took for me to be on the other side of the world. I took a youth group. I was a youth worker for the past 10 years after I was a butcher. And um, I took a youth group from one of the poorest estates in, in, in west of England to a very poor area in Zambia. And I thought, I'm going to create the greatest trip for these guys. It's going to be all about them. And so we put a load of money towards it. We fundraised and, and it was going to be a great trip. We spent the time going around uh, children's HIV clinics, praying for people. We went around townships and all sorts. Amazing trip. 
And then night six, I'd, I'd asked a, a, local, a local guy who did work around the area to come and chat to our young people and tell them how we got into doing some of this work. He started by sharing his story. And it started with him encountering abuse. And as he started to tell his, his story, my heart started to beat a little faster. I still hadn't told a single soul about my past. And then as he shared about how when he became a Christian, he found all kinds of freedom, that his identity wasn't in that stuff. That instead his, his heavenly father looks down at him and says, you are a son of the living king. That nothing can get in the way with that. My heart started to beat a little faster. And so we drove back to where we were staying and all the youth group all went to bed, probably. Who knows? But I went to my room and I just burst into tears. And my wife, who was there on the trip as well, she said, what's the matter? Because what had happened is, as I started dating my wife, I thought, if I tell her, then she won't want to date me anymore. And then we got engaged and I thought, if I tell her, then she'll call off the wedding. And then we got married and, because, and then I thought, if I tell her, she'll want to separate. Because shame... And fear is such a prison. You start believing all kinds of lies about yourself that just aren't true. That isn't the destiny that God calls out. It's not the purpose that God made you on this earth for. And so I told her. And of course she was amazing. Well, then we went down all the kind of legal routes and went to court and all sorts. But as I was able to speak about this stuff, some Bible verses that are written became so much more true in my life. That they will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So whatever you've come with this evening, whatever you've come with, whatever baggage, that we can know true freedom because of relationship with Jesus that sets us free from all that stuff, that says whilst your past may describe you, it no longer defines you. The thing is when we, when we, when we take Jesus' hand, all kinds of things come into fruition. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the, the storm will calm, but it means that the prince of princes, the Lord of lords, he who threw the stars into space will meet you in that mess. And so we're given a choice. Do we take a stand? Do we take a stand and say those words that truly you are the Son of God as we invite Jesus into our boat, as we invite Jesus into our life, as we invite Jesus into our mess? Will we say, it's a ghost, and let him walk by? Or we say, truly, you are God. Come, journey with me, please, Jesus. Because Jesus' presence is part of the promise. He's always going to be there. Always. No matter if you say yes or no. No matter. But it's up to us to say, Jesus, I want to take your hand. And I want to take a stand and say that truly you are the Son of God. Imagine, whether you've been here, this is your first time, or whether you've been coming for hundreds of years. If we say yes to Jesus... If we say yes, he can turn our waves into a wind. He can turn our horrifying storm into a hope-filled story. He can turn that tempest of a trial into true triumph. And this is where it gets personal. This is where it gets personal. Is Jesus going to be in your boat, in your life? Is he going to be there or is he just going to be a ghost that is amidst the rest of the world? Just a ghost that you let walk past. His presence is never up for question. It's never up for question. He wants to be with you. That's part of the promise. But will you give him your boat or just let him walk by?